coming to you from the pit in Royal Grande, California. Your hosts, John Hackleman and Dr. James Casper. It's time for Pitmaster and the Doc. Man, we've had some great guests on here. Some great guests. And and this guy, this guy is he's outside of our martial arts realm, even though he is a black belt in Taekwondo under Jun Ri. But he is one of the most famous humans on the planet. He has helped more other more humans than anyone else ever, right? By feeding them, by housing them, by clothing them, by donating, by his charitable donations. This guy is a phenomenal human being. He's like, he's larger than life, literally and figuratively. Um, they call him banana hands on uh, Shallow Hal, but he's, he's, he's one of the greatest men I know. He's, he's helped me beyond what, what he had to. He didn't like, I wasn't paying him, definitely not the whatever he makes, but he took his time, a lot of time, to help me when he didn't have to. And that's the definition of just uh, of, of charity and and kindness and 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 generosity. And I love him like I mean I love him like a mentor. And we we got to have him on our show. I texted him. I thought I'd hear from him in maybe a month, and he'd be like, "I'm too busy." He texted me right back. He said, "Sure, when?" And that's what kind of guy he is. So we have him on our show talking about what to do during this coronavirus how martial arts has helped him um, and just how to get your passion. So you're, 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 I mean, that's the way to be happy in life. He's, he's, he's the guy to follow on, on, on every single platform out there. Tony Robbins. It was a great one hour, man. I had never talked to him before, but that was a, a great hour to spend with him and hear his insights. So check it out, man. It was our, uh, one of our best podcasts. I, I think, I think to be honest, just the way it clicked and, and, the, and the way it ran, I think it, it was probably the best one. And, and I love him and I'm so grateful. And you guys are going to love it. You're going to learn so much and you're going to become a fan of Banana Hands. All right, watch it. So it's a privilege to be on the line. And nice to meet you, James. Nice hey, to meet you, Tony. Thank hey. you for doing this. Appreciate My it. Pleasure. Yeah, thanks for coming on our podcast. You know, you could have this podcast, Joe Rogan, he thinks he's he thinks he has a podcast. We have seven followers. Seven. <laughs> Whatever. We're getting there. <laughs> but anyway, we have some questions because we're an official podcast. So, uh, you know, having Tony Robbins on, being, being uh, you know, just since we're regular people and we, you know, we just got, we deal with mainly martial artists, our, our demographics, and everybody that knows that I know you, it makes me a mini celeb. Let me, I'll admit that. <laughs> yeah. I think you're more than a mini celeb in the fighting business, brother. <laughs> Especially you're pretty damn uh, legendary for what you did with Chuck. Yeah, thanks. But, but they always like, uh, everybody not only has such gratitude towards the way you've come in and just, uh, just changed so many people's lives. It's, it's unbelievable. So a lot of people... Um, and I, me included, 
what is a normal like what is a normal Tony Robbins growing up as a child? I mean, when did you find finally say you're not normal? You're a you're a, you're a, you're, a, you're a I mean, I don't want to get uh, crazy, but you're like this this might be political incorrect. You might have to cut this out. But, you know, I believe in God and you know a lot of other people do. But you're the closest thing to God like of anyone I know. Oh, dude. Well, uh, I, I appreciate it. You've gone a little too far on that one. But what I am, I, I try to embrace, I, you know, what I believe we're made for. You know, and I, as far as when did I know that I had certain gifts, I think we all have gifts. But my, I really believe my, my strongest gift is my hunger to serve people. I, you know, I'm, I'm just turned 60 years old. I've been doing this for 43 years in a hundred plus countries. And people say, what the hell? You know, like last year I went to 108 cities. I went to 18 countries, some of them a couple times. And, uh, and you know, like, I don't need to do this obviously, but if there's nothing more fulfilling in life, because I think early in my life, I, I realized that if you could touch somebody's life, there was nothing more meaningful. And I didn't have any great gifts except the hunger to help. So when I was like in, you know, junior high school and high school, I was obsessed with finding answers because I had so many of my friends that had problems. And it started with me, quite frankly, just being, you know, I was really short, believe it or not. I was 5'1 my sophomore year in high school. You know, I'm now 6'7", obviously. I tell people the difference is personal growth, right? But I was a little fat kid. And so I started reading these books about how to get fit, how to get healthy, how to change my diet, how to exercise. And so I took some of my friends, you know, all of a sudden girls paid attention to me and my I helped my friends and then it, it just grew. So I, you know, I took a speed reading course when I was still in uh, you know, just a freshman in high school and I read a book a day, but I didn't do that. But I read about 700 books over seven years in the year of human development, psychology, physiology. And, you know, a lot of it's repetitive, but because I, I, I didn't look at it as repetitive, I just thought it was confirming what I'd learned. I tried to apply what I learned, you know, and then Gradually, I had more and more skills. So by the time I was in high school, I was Mr. Solution. Like you had a problem, I had the solution, especially if you're a girl, I had extra incentive, right? <laughs> but I, you know, gradually when I started to realize that I had certain gifts, I think it was the gift of caring. I was being trained in something called neurolinguistic programming, NLP it's called, you probably heard of it. It's the science of how language can affect the nervous system. And you know, people go to you know therapists sometimes in traditional approaches, and they might have a, a lifetime phobia, and it might take four, five, six, seven years to deal with. And I remember I got, you know, I took this person with a phobia. I was in a class with lots of other psychiatrists. I wasn't one. I talked my way in the class and said, you all these psychologists, but they're all conditioned to think the old way. Why don't you let me attend and just see what I can do? And I, this, this woman started splitting personalities in the middle of the course. And I was only like five days into the course. And the, the, the man who was leading his name is John Grinder. is a brilliant linguist and just a genius and a former uh, you know, Green Beret, just a really brilliant guy. And he's out of the room and everybody's freaking out. So I stood up and handled this woman. I, you know, mostly did what they'd already told us, but I took a little bit further just because I cared so much. And so it made me believe I could help anyone because everybody's like, oh my God, you have a gift. I, I, I use the same tools they did. I just used them. I didn't think about them. And then gradually, you know, I started working with athletes and turning them around. You know, 1984 Olympics, that's old I am. I was 23 years old, 24 and I helped this guy, Michael O'Brien, who wasn't supposed to you know, make the swimming team, and he ended up winning the gold medal. And then Andre Agassi, and then, you know, Mother Teresa, and Nelson Mandela, and President Clinton. And it just grew and grew and grew. I mean, when I was 31, 32 years old, and I'm walking through, you know, um, Camp David with the President of the United States, and he's asking me for coaching. I was like, holy shit, this is a wild thing. But I really believe my gift is my caring, that, like, 
when you care that much, you study, you want to help, you look for every answer. And I think the, the greatest people in any category of business or life or sports or entertainment are the ones that care so much about their audience that it calls to them to reach for something more than themselves. You know, it's, um, I think it was Martin Luther King who said, a man or a woman, a human, who's not found something they're willing to die for is not fit to live. That's pretty strong words, but I would emulate that. I think we need to find something bigger than ourselves, and that's when you find your gifts. And everybody has gifts. They're different for everybody. Some people, it's poetry. Some people, it's their parenting. Some people, it's sports. You know, I, I found my gifts and my ability to serve people, but they, were, they, were, they came about because I've just, I'm a learning machine and I, I want to light people up. To this day, nothing gives me more joy outside my own family than to see somebody who's struggling or challenged, whether it's like they're suicidal or they made $500 million and they're bored and, you know, out of their mind and, and depressed. It doesn't matter the context. To be able to turn that around in a few minutes and show them how to do it for themselves is unbelievably fulfilling. So it's not like there was a single moment in my life where, oh, I got a gift. Um, and, and I think those gifts have grown because I keep growing. It's like, you know, a lot of people tell me I got 10 years experience of something they'll tell me. And I go, really? Do you have one year of, exp one year of experience? You did the same shit nine years? Or did you really keep growing every year? And so, you know, you could be an idiot. In my position, I've been doing this for 43 years, you know, in 100 countries. At this point, I could be an idiot. And I have to see there's patterns of human behavior, patterns that make you depressed, patterns that make you excited, patterns that make you overwhelmed and stressed out of your mind, patterns that will bring you joy and peace. And once you know what those patterns are, it's not that hard to change them. But we think we are our patterns. We think it's us that there's something wrong when it's just a pattern, a pattern of belief, a pattern of focus, a pattern of emotion. And so I've gotten good at that. And so, but sports was one of the places I broke through because, you know, when I started out, there was no coaches. I called myself a coach because I didn't see myself better than the other people. I was like, I remember, you know, people call me a motivator and a guru and I hated those terms. It's like, that's not who I am. I thought I was a pretty good athlete. I was a better athlete than some of my coaches. But they were a better coach because I was in the game. They were outside. You know, I was in the forest. They were outside seeing what's going on. And they gave me these little insights. And they cared about me. And so that became my metaphor. And for years, I called myself a coach. And I remember I was on Larry King back in the old days. And I just coached President of the United States. And he goes, what is this coach thing? You're not a coach. You don't work with sports teams. I said, well, actually, I, I do and I am work with sports teams. I, you know, I've got three NBA championship rings now you know, at this stage. Uh, and an NHL Stanley Cup ring for the teams I've worked with. But back then, I've done a lot of teams. I said, but that's not the point. It's like I'm really coaching people to get to the next level because they have the skill. They have the ability. I'm not better than them. And I think that mindset uh, has helped me to expand. Now, everybody's a coach, you know, and, and I hate it, quite honestly, because to me, when I was coaching, I guaranteed the results you didn't pay me. You know, now anyone go to a class, call themselves a coach, you know, hang up a shingle. And so there's a lot of terrible coaches. But like in every industry, there's some really great people out there. And those are the ones that I think are helping to make a difference. So, but in sports was more accepted. So when I worked with Agassi and, you know, he was dropped, I think it was 31 in the world and he went to number one, I got more credit than I probably deserved. He gave me more credit than I probably deserved. But I did help him immensely. Or, you know, working with the, you know, the, the NHL team back then, the, you know, the Kings never made it to the Stanley Cup. And I went with them the whole way, turned around their goalie and, you know, he'd been giving up three and four goals and he, three straight shutouts. And all of a sudden the whole team wanted to work with me. And then, you know, we went to the Stanley Cup together. And then as years went by, sports made it more popular. Then when I started working with giant world leaders and then, you know, the mass audience, that's how I got to where I am today, where I have the privilege of being able to serve so many people. Wow. And 
you're 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 underselling. You're forgetting our demographics. Look what you did. People don't realize. I love Chuck Liddell. You love Chuck Liddell. He's of he's guys nice, me. But he was he's he was on like out of his last eight fights, he lost seven of them. Yeah. You know because he was so great. But then he you know he was at the end of his career. That out of that eight fights, the one he won, the only one he won happened to be, I don't know if this is a coincidence, happened to be the one that you worked with him on. I remember uh, Silva. And I remember I remember saying, Okay, we're gonna we're gonna go to, you know, Chuck uh, we're gonna go work with uh, you know, Tony Robbins and he was like, uh, you know, he's a he's a he he was a normal fighter, just wants to fight. He goes, What is that gonna help? I go, You're just going, let's go. And I remember him sitting down I, th- I think it was the UPW. Yeah. Um, and I remember just like 10 minutes in, I looked at him and he was like, he was transfixed. <laughs> and like, I, was, I got hungry and, you know, because your, your, your UPWs last for a while, you know? 12 hours in a day, sure. <laughs> so I was like, I'm going to go grab a bite. He goes, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. I'm going to stay here. He <laughs> would not leave the chair for the entire three or four days. I know. I remember he, when the firewalk came, I go, no, he's not doing the firewalk because he's got a fight come up. You go, yes, he is. I was like, okay. And he did the firewalk, and he was a huge – and he won the only fight he won in, the, in those eight fights. Yeah. And not only, not only that, you worked with somebody named Conor McGregor, yeah. who, you know, he's a great fighter and all, but he, he kind of had some bad qualities in his in, – in his, you know, in his persona and he was making some really bad decisions and he was representing himself in a negative way. And then you came in for that, for that last fight with Cowboy Cerrone. And not only did he win probably the most impressive win he's ever had, or just about any fighters ever had. Yeah. His attitude seemed like he was humble and he was grateful and he was a whole different person after working with you. He not only, you know, he hugged Cowboy. He yeah, that was my favorite guy. moment. My favorite moment was not the way he took him out in 30 seconds. My favorite moment was how he got on his knees and hugged Cowboy and sincerely looked in his eyes and was loving to him. And and, just, and when he went and hugged his grandma, you know, who's really raised Cowboy, that's that's true Connor. It's not Connor. First of all, I didn't do these things to these guys. These guys already had it. All he did was give them some ways to trigger the best of them to come out, whether it's Chuck back then or whether it be Connor just recently. And, you know, Connor's a incredibly generous and loving man but you know he's got a persona too and trash talking is part of his game and part of his life but you know i think what happened is you know my job is to really help people magnify the best part of themselves and so we all get stuck sometimes not just fighters like if you could look at like archetypes like connor's got an incredible warrior in him so does chuck i mean like a warrior is the part of you that will not be stopped that will push through anything that will fight to the death that will never give up that kind of intensity that I have in me, you have in you, certainly Connor and Chuck have, and, and most fighters or successful people have. But you can overuse one part of yourself. Because what really made Connor successful, and he, he was fighting Habib, and he's got an incredible warrior, but a warrior's not enough for Habib. He's got other talents and skills and capacities. What made him magical was the magician part of him, meaning there's a part of us that doesn't have to fight so hard, that sees the insight, that sees the moment, right? It's that magical part of us. It's that magician, right? And that's the part of Connor when he got angry. The, he only had his warrior, 
you didn't have as much of a magician, the one that like has in the past been able to see that little prince in the guy's hand, anticipate where it's coming and take the guy out. And you know, you saw when that, that moment in the beginning of the fight, it looked like Connor, oh my God, he's gonna take him down. And he saw that opening and boom, made that move. And that was the magician in him. That wasn't just fighter. That was another part of it. And Connor's a lover. I mean, he really loves the sport, loves the people around. He's so loyal to his people. I mean, he's got an unbelievable team. And so, yeah. the, but the bottom line is he kind of lost some of the love for the fight because of his anger and caught up in, in the situation with the beat in the past. And then there's a sovereign in him. I mean, this guy knows more about fighting at his young age than most people will ever know. And the sovereign's kind of like the king or the queen, the one that has been through the battles and doesn't get caught up in the moment and understands how to have longer vision. And so what I do with fighters or people of any sort is I don't give them anything. I'm like the Wizard of Oz. They've already got it. Every person watching has gifts. I help them find or re find or reignite those gifts. But in Connor's case, I didn't do this stuff to Connor. People are saying that Connor did this for himself. But I was grateful to be part of a team to help turn him around and get him to be at his very best. And most importantly, not only be at his best as a fighter, be at his best as a man. And that's just using all the parts of him. When we get angry, a lot of times, you know, you get you lose perspective on everything else that's out there. So the guy you saw out there in Connor, that's not Tony Robbins' creation. That's the real Connor McGregor just coming back to his true self. So I'm, again, really proud to have been one of the people helping him, but he's got an amazing team, and the guy has unbelievable discipline. As you know, that's what made Chuck so successful as well. We worked with you all the time. You guys are the ones that make it happen. Yeah, I, I agree with you partly, but you never – for some reason, it can't be a coincidence. All of a sudden, you work with Chuck, boom, he wins one fight out of eight. Then you work with Connor, and he goes from, uh, you know, not the nicest person in the world to the most loving, caring, warrior, Bushido guy out yeah. there. Yeah. Does any of this have to do with um, your, uh, your martial arts background? Uh, I know you trained with uh, Jun Ri. Yes, I did. Yeah, I have a black belt in Taekwondo. I, I honestly didn't want to learn Taekwondo. I wanted to learn, you know, Aikido because I thought I love the beauty of that art. I love that you can have 10 people attack you and you don't even have to harm them. Just you, you it's like an attack is an energy you use. And that's kind of like more of my philosophy. But Jun Ri, you know, he taught the acupuncture to Muhammad Ali. He, you know, he helped Bruce Lee in the earliest days. And he was such a happy human being. His whole philosophy of joy and happiness and love is what I loved about him most. And he literally worked with me. I would do my seminars. As you know, they go to midnight, one or two in the morning. This is when I was like 24, 25, 26 years old. And I would work with him every day for two hours. I finished at one and I'd go up till 3.30 and then I'd sleep for four hours and get up and do the seminars. So quite frankly, it burned me out. I got injured a lot, but I got my, my goal is get my black belt in the earliest time anyone ever done in his training. And the level of discipline I had was insane. But it kind of killed my joy for it as a sport because it was such a burden. I was, I was a dumbass. I was a kid. I was looking for the black belt and being the best as opposed to the beauty of the art. And so I still have those skills, but I, I have some Aikido skills and some other skills of those natures as well. But, you know, 80% of success in most things, including sports, is psychology. And 20% is mechanics. Now, if you're the wrong mechanics, you're screwed. You can't succeed, whether it be business or athletics. But if you got the greatest mechanics and you got the wrong psychology, the wrong mindset, the wrong emotions, there's no way you're going to maximize your ability. It's always like, I always tell people, everybody knows what, not everybody, lots of people know what to do, but they don't do what they know. And that difference is those emotions, those thought patterns. And I'm really good at helping people shift those and then lock them in like a muscle that bam, you hit that, somebody hits you and the best part of you comes out instead of 
you know, the fearful part of you or the angry part of you or the weird part of you. Fuck, I'm not perfect. No one is. We all have make mistakes, but it's really, can you, can you jump back quickly? Can you restore quickly? That's what makes you champion. Yeah. What, what about, um, as, as a, as, to train a fighter, which you've, you've done with, uh, uh, huge successes. Do you, do you use that, um, you should versus must a lot because that that that's one one you, you have so many things that you've taught people but that's one thing that you push make it a must not a should yeah and that that we that relates to everything and fighting right yeah that's true i mean it's 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 a pretty simple thing it's one of you know thousands of things i do but philosophically People, like, when you need to do, when you should do something, you do it when it's easy, you do it when it's convenient. But when it's tied to your identity, when it's who the F you are, then there, you, there's no question. You just make it happen. It's who I am to do this. And so that's the reason should and must. I should talk to my kids more. I should lose some weight. I should work out. Well, you're just going to shit all over yourself, right? Should all over yourself. But when it's a must... And what makes it a must is either enough pain where you say, I can't stand this another day of my life, not the moment this is changing now, or it's enough desire, enough hunger that says, I will not settle for less than I can be or do or share or create or give. When you can ignite that hunger inside yourself, it's amazing what human beings can do. What people, human beings can do is extraordinary. What they will do is usually disappointing. And the difference is most people have a long list of shoulds. But the must, man, like there could be a family and there's four kids and the mom gets sick and there's not enough money to take care of her. None of them have the money. One kid will always come up with the money. The one that sees it's a must. It doesn't mean they have the money. They just find it because they have to because they're making, taking care of their mother is more important than anything else on earth. And they'll find a way. When it's a must, human beings are amazing. When it's a should, yeah, we do okay. Yeah, so, it's, so, mo so again, a lot of people – you alluded to that you're a motivated motivational guy or a guru guy but in reality the coach to me the coach in you when people ask me well what is tony robbins about and i remember i remember sitting in your house in your backyard and i was having a lot of problems i actually came across and i and i'm not going to say you called me this but you might or might not have i was i was acting like a little bitch and, and I think I, I did call you that, actually. Yes. Yes. <laughs> you remember that shit. <laughs> but I did it from a place of love, not from a place of making you wrong, because I know you were better than you were being in that moment. And I've been in the same place. We've all been in that place of zero judgment. Yes. But yeah, it was a challenge, you know? It was. But, but there were, there's, so much, there's so much technique and there's so many strategies that you teach so many people to reach such high things. Like, Conor McGregor, he's a different person now. You can say not you, but it's all because of you. you um, he might have had it inside him, but you brought it out. Chucks, win, whatever. Everything you've done over these years, it's not just going rah, rah, rah. You know, you're not motivating them. You're teaching them these strategies. Where in the hell do you come up with so many strategies for every situation? Because you're not just a motivational guy. You're a strategist. You're a coach. How does that happen? Do you spend, how much time do you spend taking care of it? Do you sleep? What is your normal day like? Because it's unbelievable the strategies you've taught me. And I remember that day I was sitting in your backyard sobbing like a little bitch, which you pointed out, because I was, I was feeling I needed to change some things. 
and you strategize these things. And that was 10 years ago. And I've been doing them ever since. Oh. And nobody ever told me these strategies that I've lived by so successfully. My life's better right now than it's ever been in my life. I'm oh. happier right now than I've ever been. And you, so I've had a lot of great mentors, but, uh, you know, so much of that came from, you know, Tony spending an hour and a half with Tony Robbins 10 years ago. How do you do that? Where does that come from? Is it natural or do you read all day? What, how do you come up with strategies? So many different strategies. Well, part of it is, you know, uh, first of all, I, I'm not a motivator. I hate that fucking term. Um, that's not a pump up because a pump up's like a warm bath. Don't get me wrong. Inspiration's great. It's like a, you know, a bath you or shower. You should probably have one every day, but that's not enough. You need the right strategy. Otherwise you're motivated you're like a chicken with your head cut off. And that's what some people think I do because they've seen me with, you know, 15,000 people in a stadium and they're jumping and they're, that's because if you learn in a traditional quiet stupor state, you don't retain any of it. Right? If I asked you, where were you on 9-11? People remember the moment they heard about it. If I asked you, where were you on 8-11 of the same year? No one knows because information without emotion is not retained. But the, where do I get it? Is this like, it's 43 years of not doing things the same way. It's like constantly learning and growing. And I've, not only learning and growing by reading books and so forth and loading up with every seminar I could. I went to seminars when I, you know, I didn't have money to pay my rent. I paid to go to seminars because I, I figured if I can't pay my rent, I'm never going to pay my rent unless I learn some new strategies on how to add more value to people's lives, to be able to make a bigger difference. And so that's never stopped for me. But then also, you know, the whole 10,000 hours thing, which I think is bullshit because you can spend 10,000 hours and not grow very much. But, you know, the whole expertise idea, I've got 40,000 hours plus. I worked in a hundred countries and I've put myself, I think the real secret is putting yourself on the line. It's like amazing what your brain will do when you really are committed to serving something more than yourself. And I, I really feel like life supports what supports more of life. If you're just trying to take care of yourself, you get a certain level of insight from the universe or God or life because you're part of life and life wants to support life. But if you're trying to support you and your family, you get a different level of, in, in, of, of understanding or awareness or insight. If you're trying to help your community or humanity and it's not bullshit, you know what's true inside yourself. There are things that have happened when I'm on stage. It's like, I don't even know how the hell it happened. It's like, how could I know that that's what was going on in this person before they opened their mouth? Well, part of that is 40, 50,000 hours in 100 countries and I've been faced with everything. I've learned so much by being in where I had to produce the result. And then, I, you know, I then after stuff comes through me, I go, how the hell did that work? And I figure out the strategies so I can do it again and teach other people to do it. But, you know, I'm constantly learning and growing. And I'm not just interested in one approach. You know, I'm focused on finance, for example, because people's lives are so impacted. I'm, I'm focused on physiology and health and vitality and strength. I'm writing a book right now with two medical doctors that are regenerative medicine experts in the world on stem cells and so forth. I have a stem cell company. And so I'm like, I, you know, I, I tore my rotator cuffs during uh, a snowboarding accident, a really severe one. And, you know, three different doctor surgeons, like this has to be done now, three to six months of recovery. I can't afford not be able to lift my shoulder for three months, right? So I was like, I searched everything. And then I met Dr. Bob Harari, kind of the founder of stem cells. And then he said, Tony, don't get them in the U.S. They're weak. He told me where to go and how to get these stem cells. They're like five days old. They're cord stem cells, not fetal stem cells, of course, but cord stem cells. One session, I had this cytokine response, my body shaking, freezing, everything else. I woke up the next morning, my shoulder and my spine, no pain in it for the first time in 12 years. So like, I'm always looking for the cutting edge. So now I'm writing this book on life force and I'm interviewing all the greatest doctors from Harvard, all over the world. 
you know, I spoke at the regenerative health conference that the Pope puts on. I was the cleanup speaker. The Pope believes now, and he thinks that stem cells are a gift from God. So all the best doctors in the world with their breakthroughs. And so I said, God, the world needs to hear this, just like I did in finance, where I need 50 of the smartest financial people in the world. Warren Buffett, Ray Dalio, Carl Icahn, you name them. And then I convinced that and showed people how they could apply it to their own lives. But more, most importantly, though, I practice it. That's how I took my little, you know, when I first started writing those books, gosh, what was that? That's 2008, I guess, nine, right? Right around the time all this happened, so 2010. So almost 10 years ago, my companies were like $50 million companies. Now we do $6.5 billion, my combined companies. I have, you know, 54 companies. I learned that stuff by studying the best on earth. And then I teach that to other people so I can turn around their businesses. So most of what I learned is because I'm immersed in solving a problem for myself or other people. And then I figure out how to scale it, how to instruct it, how to teach it with immersion so that people get real results. And I believe also that's the way you learn. You know, people, like if I ask most people, you know, do you study a foreign language in high school or college? Almost everybody raised their hand and say yes. I said, how many of you speak it thoroughly now? And they all drop their hand. I said, because you learn a little bit at a time. You didn't use it much. But if you want to learn Italian and you had the money and the time, what would you do? You'd go to Italy. If I, you had no teacher and I drop you for 90 days in Rome, you're going to speak Italian in 90 days by immersion. But this little bit of a time learning is why most people never master anything. They dabble. So why I do events that are immersion, like a full weekend, day and night for four days, it's like you build a different muscle and you're doing constantly than if you train a little bit here and there. And so I do mental, emotional, physical, financial, business trainings that have that kind of total immersion that you would do with an athlete. An athlete's not going to prepare for a fight and doing things irregularly or a little bit here, a little bit there. It's their life. And so I make it their life for a weekend or four or five days. And that's why people get such great results. And then I'm training them on what the best of the world do, not my concepts. Yeah. What, what, um, this crazy time right now with this crazy pandemic and, and uh, you know, what, as, as, as a, as a um, probably the, the, the most famous coach on the planet to teach us uh, normal people, how are we going to get past this, uh, not, not physically, but how are we going to get past this um, financially and spiritually you know, how are we going to get past this craziness? People are losing their jobs. They're losing their businesses. Um, you know, how, I mean, they're scared of, and I'm not talking about the virus. They're scared of losing everything. What, what do you, what is, everybody's going to turn to you right now. I'm, I'm sure you're, you're just overwhelmed with people coming at you with this. What, what's a, what's this, what are we going to do? I think we have to start with what the problem is. And the problem is not the virus. The problem is the pandemic of fear. Because when, when you're living in fear, a decision made from fear is usually the wrong decision. And what's happened is well-meaning people around the world have told us two things that are now coming into question in the scientific community. First, they told us this disease was speedily, rapidly transforming across the world. And then most importantly, it was incredibly deadly. Uh, the, re the estimation by the CDC that was reported just a few months ago and that Dr. Tony Fauci has brought forward multiple times is 200,000 to 2 million Americans dying this year. I, I turned to several people at the time and said, you know, you got to question that because it's all based on China where they said the morbidity rate, which means what percentage of people die was 3.5 to 4.5. You take that across tens of millions, hundreds of millions of people, you have something that can destroy the planet is perception. 
But in reality, they had a very small set of figures. They had the most unhealthy people, most of them, as you know by now, probably in, in their 80s and 90s, late 70s, with most of them three, but a minimum of one pre-existing condition from heart disease to cancer to uh, diabetes to respiratory problems, right? And so the way the math works, it sounds technical, but all they knew was how many people died. They didn't know how many people actually, quote unquote, had the virus. And the more we test, the more we find people with the virus. There have been 2 million people test in the United States, you know, with the, uh, you know to, to see the virus. And so, or 3.2, I think is the recent number. And 2 million supposedly have it. But most people are asymptomatic, meaning they have no symptoms. Well, they have mild symptoms, the same as the flu. The people that are affected are extremely well, much older, but the fear that what happened is we reacted. And so what many scientists are asking now is what's the real morbidity rate? And I'm just reading from, like the guy's name, the Nobel Prize winner from Stanford. Uh, and he's not the only one, multiple people come out and said, you know, really, if you look at the real numbers now that we're starting to test, when you bring back, actually Tony Fossey said this in the uh, New England Journal of, of uh, Medicine, which he actually was being criticized for saying so many people are gonna die. And he said, well, it does look like the percentage of people, if you, if you start to estimate the asymptomatic people, no symptoms without the virus, and the people have mild symptoms, it's probably well under a percent, maybe less than a half a percent, which is basically the same as the flu. He said it himself, it might just be a severe flu. Then three days later, he's on television and he said, 200,000 people are gonna die. And then they questioned him and said, you used to say 2 million. He said, well, it could be 2 million. Well, I'm sure you know a couple of days ago, they dropped the estimate to 60,000. Now, any death is horrible. It's your family, your mother, your father. But if we don't have perspective, then we shut down the economy. And that has consequences to people's health, vitality, suicide rates, everything you can possibly imagine. And so the overreaction, it looks like to a lot of scientists now, I'm not saying it, I'm not qualified, but I can quote you a dozen of them. I'm doing podcasts with them. I just did one with Dr. Bob Harari. And he's, he was describing the challenge and the overreaction. And also, like in Italy, the average person that died is 85 years old. That's the average. They're the second oldest country in the world. And people are scared. They all run to the hospital because they have a fever or they have, a, you know, they have sneezing or coughing. And then what happens is 90% of them have to be sent home, but the, the hospitals are overrun because of fear. And then there's not enough people to take care of the people that need it. But everything was about flattening the curve. Flattening the curve means the same number of people die. They just don't die all at once so the hospitals can deal with it. Nobody talks about that. It has to be a balanced approach. We should test everybody. We should do all the things the government's told us, wash our hands and so forth. But everyone, you're starting to see people all over the country saying, wait a second, these numbers they told us, 2 million deaths, you know, 4 million deaths, they're not happening. And so any death matters, but we have to weigh everything and the consequence of what it does to everyone. So now what do we do? This is where there aren't simple answers. Many businesses are permanently damaged. Many people are going to go out of business. You have 22 million people I heard this morning that are unemployed. Uh, you know, we're in a, obviously a recession could be worse, could be a depression. But listen, winter's not forever, brother. It doesn't matter what it is. You know, the nighttime is followed by the day. What follows winter is springtime. Some winters are long, some are short, some are hard, some are easy. All winters come. And we haven't had winter in a long time, a real winter. Certainly not a financial winter in about 10 years. And so, look. We're going to get through this. We're human beings. We're adaptive, just like our immune systems. Are we really? We've been around for you know fifty thousand plus years. You know, on your estimates of what you call human, right? We've dealt with every virus, every element that's ever come down the pipe. We're not going away. We may have made a giant set of mistakes. It certainly looks like the mathematical models they made decisions on, perhaps 
not perhaps, we're completely wrong in terms of numbers of deaths by far. We may have destroyed the world economy for a period of time, but human beings were adaptive, we're strong, we're smart, we're creative. Some people are gonna live in fear still. Some people are not gonna do what they used to do. Some people like 9-11 affected them, they're not gonna travel again, but I think eventually humans will adapt, we'll find our way, and I'm going to be one of those voices, not one of many that will be out there trying to show people new ways to handle it. But the biggest thing you got to do is get rid of the fear. And unfortunately, you know, the media, they're not bad people. They're trying to protect us. You know, some have obviously business interests, some have political interests, but mostly they're just trying to protect us. Just like Fossey. I wouldn't want his job. I mean, the guys overestimated to try to protect us. But boy, sometimes, as they said, the cure is worse than the, the source of the problem to start with. And so my, my view personally, just a personal view, I'm not telling people to stop washing their hands yesterday. I'm not telling them to break any laws or rules, do whatever the government's telling you, but don't live in fear. And then as soon as those doors open, stop licking your wounds and go to work and figure out what to do to turn your life and your business around because there are ways. Is it going to be tough? Is it going to be harder? You bet it's going to be harder. It's going to be tougher. Like am I, you know, I got all these companies. Uh, you know, I'm one of the owners of the LAFC uh, football club, uh, soccer, you know, Major League Soccer in LA. Help build the stadium. Help fund it. Imagine, we have no season. We had 22,000 people every night. We're so proud of what we built there in two years in LA from nothing. And I've got amazing partners there, brilliant business people. But what do you do when you have no ticket sales, you have no TV revenues, you have no sponsorship income, and you've got a stadium paid for in all your teams? I mean, it's, it's a little crazy. So I have an adapt. I have a resort in Fiji. There's no coronavirus, you know, death there. But guess what? You know, everybody's shut down flying everywhere. So, the, you know, I got 200 employees there that I'm maintaining and trying to keep the doors open and support on. So I don't care who you are. We're all affected by this. In my seminar business, I mean, you know, you know my seminars, 10, 15,000 people stadiums. I have six events that were canceled. You know, just the sunk costs alone are about $25 million lost in those companies. And now we don't even know if they're going to let us do a seminar. They won't let us educate people. So I'm doing these online. I'm, if, if, if any of your viewers own a business, a small business, I did a thing online to show them how to get the money from the government. And I'm doing anything I can to help people. But it's going to be a long road ahead, but it's not forever. And if you can get over the fear and focus on what to do, lick your wounds and move on, but don't stay with your wounds, then I think, you know, we'll get back to a good place. How long will that take? That's anybody's guess. Is it going to probably take longer than we want? Yes. Is there going to be more pain ahead? Yes. But we can get through it, and we will. And I think this is a time to, to think about what's most important to you, like time to connect with your family, connect to what you value most, and then rethink the way you do the things that you do and see if there's new ways to get it done. So I don't have any instant solutions, but I know we're going to get through this, and I know anybody, you know, your fighters, anybody of that nature, like, you know, I love Dana White, right? Dana White's like, I'm going to do the fight anyway. <laughs> I love it. And then, you know, Disney said, we don't want the flack. So, you know, he's doing this fight island, right? Like re remaking what Bruce Lee talked about. They're going to do these great fights there. I mean, that's the spirit that makes America great and makes the world great. Makes human beings thrive. It's people that just won't accept limitation and they find a way to do it still within the lines of the rules. So that, my message is don't give up, move forward. It is winter. Stop whining about winter. Let's, as soon as you get the chance, keep your head straight. As soon as you get a chance, go to work and find a way to help people beyond yourself because you'll get out of yourself when you help others. You got a question? No, I think it's kind of like, at least in my profession, it's kind of like a forced sabbatical. You know, I'm a sports medicine doc, so yeah. there's no sports right now. It's, it's uh, really quiet. Luckily, I can go work in the emergency room and fix broken bones and stuff that still needs to be done. But most of my practice is shut down. So... Yeah. For me, 
for me, it's a it's kind of a forced sabbatical. Spend more time maybe with John, more time with my family. Yeah, uh, a lot of things I didn't have time to do. You get really caught up in how busy you can be. Yeah, and you know what? For me, and I, I know I'm probably the minority, but for me, it's been kind of a, a reset. And uh, so I'm I'm looking at the positives still in it, and I see patients are already coming back to the practice. You know, everyone was scared and away for a few weeks. But the last week, my practice has really picked back up again. People just want to get treated. They're sick of their knee pain. They're sick of their shoulder pain. Yeah. They're kind of they're kind of getting over it um, to a degree. Well, you see, and uh, I saw, you know, there's the media that's got people watching every minute. They're stuck at home and they're watching and they got a frame around it. And they're getting rewarded, unfortunately. I'm sure their intent is good, but they're rewarded. There's people that can't stand Trump, so they see it's an opportunity to say it's his fault. Um, you know, I'm not tell, I'm not a Trump supporter, and I'm not a I'm independent. I try to look at things in a balanced way. I think we're we're in a place right now where I'm glad your practice is coming back, and I and I think if you didn't get fearful, I think that's your secret. And people have a need to come to where you are. It's a necessity. Some other businesses are going to suffer a bit more, and they're going to have to find new ways of reinventing themselves, or they're going to have to do something new for a period of time. So again, there's no easy answers here, but. Um, it sure is crazy, and I think people are starting to hit a, a threshold where they're going to say, listen, we need to go back to work. More and more people are doing that. And also, when you see the numbers, they don't match up with the reasons why we shut this down, at least not from what the experts are showing us right now. Well, we're, we're very lucky. We live in a community, you know, it's, you know where John lives. It's the central coast of California where we've been very lucky. We have very few cases, and people are keeping their distance and doing all those social responsible things, but We've been super lucky where we live, just by the coast, and it's been relatively unaffected. So yeah. I'm really glad to hear one, that. I'm really glad to hear that. One thing, one thing you do a lot of, uh, and I do. I, you know, I have an online course. I teach. I teach online, and I did that. I've been doing that for like the past year, and then all of a sudden this came in. So I'm really gonna, you know, picking that up. Yeah. But how about you? Would you do a like an online? Some kind of like a UPW that is is virtual. Well, we're, when we are doing an event that's shorter time frames, I'm doing a partnership with a friend of mine, and we're going to bring like Tom Brady and myself all for free online so during this time. It'll probably come out in about two weeks, and each week we'll have another great communicator speaker, and it's all for free. The challenge in my business is I can do online, and I do online, and I do audio programs that are all valuable books. But there's nothing. It's like you can read about swimming, or you can go swimming. You know, and in my, you know, you can show somebody how to do it, but when you put your hands on them, it's a different thing. And so the events are really important, but we don't know. We may not be allowed to do them in certain states and places. Right now, it looks like California is going to not allow any sports with fans until the end of the year, maybe. Um, you know, similarly in Chicago, they've got concerns. So we're looking at new ways to do this besides virtual. I have, I have, I filmed everything in virtual reality and we actually tested about a year ago two years ago, people wearing them and in a room with a small number of people, you know, they didn't know they'd be spaced apart. <laughs> but we're ready to do that for people that can't come to the live seminar. And we're even looking at, you know, how some churches have done these drive-in churches and people are in their cars and they're socially protected and so forth. We're looking at options in some states of actually even doing, you know, 5,000 people in their cars and doing this, people. but we want to still do live events because there's a radically different component it's like go to the ballpark with, you know, 100 people, go to the ballpark with 20,000 people. You and I both know it's a different experience. So there is a group dynamic that I still want to get and we'll eventually get back to, but I'm not going to wait to help people. And that's why I'm doing the work I'm doing online right now. Yeah. 
from the pit master and the doc. And I, I can't believe our seven viewers. <laughs> I have a feeling knowing that everybody that we're like the big shots. We go in town. And I was like, you yeah, you're really having Tony Robbins on. I want to thank you not only for this. I'm sure we both, we're both thanking you for doing this, but I want to thank you for all martial artists. They love you. And I want to thank you from my, you know, from the bottom of my, my heart, because you've helped me like, just came and came and put words on it and i'm 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 the i'm the majority because you you've helped so many people and we want to thank you for for coming and doing our humongous podcast <laughs> i think for you brother i love you dearly and thanks for taking the time and you know i love all, all i love the fight game but what i love most in the fight game are the fighters these are the people that put their ass on the line every day people have no idea the level of energy and effort and commitment of a lifetime to get in these positions. And, you know, they're putting their bodies and their hearts and, and their souls on the line in this thing. So uh, my, my total respect and love for everybody in the fight game, man. Look forward to seeing you soon. All right. Thank you very much. I love you, brother. Tony, nice Good, take care. Take care, guys.